Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio. What's the name of the show? Undersampled Radio, episode 54. We have a very special guest today. Uh, we also have Matt today. Hello. Uh, but we're going to do something crazy. We're going to, let's kick it off. Let's kick it off with Riddle Me This. I'm pretty oh. excited about this, about this riddle. And Matt and I just read through it. So before it slips the old brain... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce it to you. Here we, here we go. You ready? <laughs> yes. He just, he just edited it just three minutes ago. <laughs> okay, you have N users on a patrol project. This could be done with any amount of users. Each one has interpreted a seismic horizon. The name of each horizon is desand underscore pre-stack underscore final underscore january 2017 underscore final underscore x where x is the author's number out of n so the the x's exist in the set one to n inclusive um last month the project was corrupted and the only backup is stored on univac tape reels or chiselings in stone tablets or some other equivalent medium one at a time each of the users enters the data tape room and is allowed by the systems admin to read only half the tapes. So what's that? N over two tapes. And is forced to put the tapes back in order, in the order in which she found them. After each user enters this backup tape room, they quickly shuffle back off to their cubicles and aren't allowed to speak with the other users. No collusion here. If one of the users can't recover their respective, oh, I'm sorry, <clears throat> this is the part he edited. If, if any one of the users can't recover their respective horizon files, they will all be fired. If, however, every single one of them recovers her own horizon, they'll all be allowed to keep their jobs and upgrade to OpenDTEC next year. Okay, so here it comes. Though the users can't collaborate during the data reading, that's you know a consequence of being shuffled into and out of this data room and back to the cubicles. They do, uh, they can, they, they go out for a beer the night before. All, they all go out together and have a strategy meeting. So the question is, what's the best strategy they can come up with to save their jobs? And what's the probability of them making it to the upgrade next year? Question. Yes. Uh, you, the, you in the plaid shirt. <laughs> Thank you, sir. The uh, the tapes are, are randomly ordered. The tapes are randomly distributed inside of the file room. Yes. The tape room, yeah. And the yeah. the tapes are not labeled. Uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. We could just say the tapes are labeled one to n. How about yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, so my my strategy can't oh. just be read. Wait, I, I, but, 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 wait. I, I know I messed up. 
sorry. This is this is due this is due to three, four weeks of time or something since I wrote this uh, until until I'm reading it now. Um, disclaimer: I didn't actually write this riddle. I just obfuscated this riddle. Uh, no, the tapes are labeled. Sorry about that. And they're okay. labeled. They are labeled one to n, but okay. they are randomly stuck on the shelves of the tape room. Okay. Yeah. So these labels do do not correspond to the users, or well, they do correspond to the users. The labels do correspond to the users. Oh, but they're only allowed to read the labels on the of of n over two. Right. Okay. So let's. So okay, the gotcha. the, there's file names. Let's say. Okay. on the tapes, which are labeled with the user's labels. I understand. And they're just sitting on the shelf with little pieces of tape on them that say whatever, one to n. Right, but they're only allowed to inspect the labels of n over 2 tapes. Indeed, they're only yeah. really allowed to read. Yes, OK. That riddle could have been given <laughs> in a much more concise way. I'm also wondering what happens if n is not an even number yeah, okay. to the rule, but let's say it's even. Let's say it's even. Good thing. Good thing we're professionals at telling you riddles. <laughs> okay, so if that riddle wasn't uh, just oblique enough to follow, let's uh, let's hope that we have some submissions because it's actually a very cool. It's a very cool um, solution. And next week, when I give the answer, I will actually say where the riddle came from, so you can hear the non-garbage version that I just told you. <laughs> Um, you want to do news, Matt? Very good. Uh, news, yeah, the uh, the hackathon that I keep talking about next month in Houston. Next month is uh, I, I already told you that it's um, sold out, but now it has also uh, has a full complement of sponsors. Like I'm actually turning sponsors away, so that's uh, that's never happened before. Um, and it's pretty cool. And one of the sponsors, um, Pioneer Natural Resources, is an operating company. Um, we did partner before with Total, but we didn't have an oil and gas company before now, other than that occasion in Paris, um, support one of these events. So that's really cool, too. Here's my question to you. Hmm. Why not just take another sponsor and get yourself a nice boat? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, if we've got excess sponsors, I'm immediately trying to push them off into the next event so that I can, like, isn't that called front-end loading or something? Um, so that I can get ahead of the sponsorship train on the next the next event. You know? I just call it the antithesis to sailing, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't think hackathons are a commercial venture of ours. That would feel weird, but, you know, maybe. Maybe one day I can, I can get a boat. I wouldn't mind just a just a, a tandem kayak. If anyone's got a tandem secondhand used tandem kayak for sale, <laughs> I am actually interested in buying one of those. And if someone wants to sponsor that, that'd be great. It's about a thousand bucks. So, <laughs> right, just put that out there. You can have your logo on the boat if you wish. But I, that's it, really. Do, do you want me to do you want me to talk about these other things? I'm, uh, they're not very. Well, I, I, I'll mention the one you you put a link in the show notes, which is kind of cool. It's just some crazy uh, volume comparison of mineral, yeah. various mined minerals to to cities and things. It's actually just a cool graphics. Take look at it for two minutes. It's wonderful. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah, he's a photographer, and the one that caught my attention was a photograph of copper mine. So you know what those often look like, these very deep, um, tiered holes, massive hole. You know, obviously massive trucks are driving up and down inside this thing. And he's computed the total, well, or you know, found out the total volume of copper mined from that mined from that facility, and then. 3D rendered a blob of copper representing or corresponding to that amount sort of sitting at the bottom of the mine like this giant kind of ball of metal and it just looks spectacular. A, a just looks really cool and shiny uh, with a shadow and everything but B it's kind of remarkable how little of it there is compared to the size of the hole it came out of. Um, he's done the same thing for some gold mines and some like nickel mines I think and some diamond mines and that's kind of cool because there's a photograph of the diamond mine in some kimberlite pipe in south africa or whatever and then he has to zoom in on the diamond that's the equivalent number of carrots that have come out of that mine because you can't really see it in the photo right it's tiny <laughs> so yeah it's it's kind of a neat visualization thing project go check it out links in the yeah. show notes uh i'm gonna work the uh I'm going to very, very um, secretly try to, to work the Excel uh, CSV uh, data handling conversation into our into our conversation here. But don't tell anybody. Hey, do we have do we have a guest this week? We do. We do have a guest actually. Oh, um, who is it? I'm glad you brought that up. You can see him sitting there. Well, if if you're watching, you can see him sitting down there in his uh, in his little square at the bottom of the screen. That's Elwin Galloway. He's uh, a geophysicist in Calgary at the AER, the Alberta Energy Regulator, previously called the EUB and the ERCB. Am I getting all of those right? Um, so far, so good, yeah. <laughs> so the Energy Regulator in Alberta. And um, I met Elwin, I think the first time we met was at the Hackathon in Calgary, right, in 2015. Yeah, I think that was the first time, yeah. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, and uh, basically since then we just stayed in touch on Software Underground and maybe Twitter a bit and uh, that kind of thing. So um, welcome, Elwin. How's it going? It's going great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You know, a uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Just uh, yeah, glad to be on here with you guys. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, welcome. You, uh, you're in Calgary right now. Are you at work? Uh, I'm at work. I work in the Alberta Geological Survey Office, and that's in Edmonton. So uh, oh, though I okay. live in Calgary, I work in Edmonton. Yeah. Oh, wow. Beg your pardon. So what, are you commuting like weekly or something, or how are you doing that? Yeah, for uh, for most weeks. I uh, come up on Mondays and drive back to Calgary. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive. Uh, but most of my work weeks are four days, and um, yeah, it makes it, makes it all right. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty easy drive. Up, isn't it? Is called the Queen Elizabeth Highway now, or something? That's right. Yeah, the, the uh, QE2, as they call it around here. And okay. uh, yeah, if, um, if I ever got an automated driving car, I think I'd, I'd really enjoy my my drive a lot more. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, weren't they talking about putting a train on that up, like you know, on that route, basically, at one point? Yeah, it's funny that comes up. Uh, that idea gets floated around every five years or so. You know, high speed train or. Maybe it'll be a monorail the next time, but uh, yeah, every time they do a feasibility study, it ends up being too expensive to justify. Yeah, right. I guess yeah. I, I always wonder how they um, how those 
cost justification things work, you know? Like, what are they taking into account? Right. Like, people's time, uh, accidents. Like, I wonder how they do that calculation. Yeah, I imagine they have, uh, I don't know, maybe they look at what's been going on in Europe or Japan in terms of rail usage and how that's spawned, I don't know, development along the rail corridor or something. But yeah, yeah, factoring all those things in would be pretty difficult, I suppose. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. In places like Japan and Europe, you've often got, I don't know, I'm guessing that the passenger rates must be 10 times what they would be between Calgary and Edmonton. So do you ever fly or you're you're driving? I drive. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a choice I've made to drive. So it's not that uh, the company's springing for that or the organization. So uh, yeah, driving for me is uh, that's my choice. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, soon it'll be a Hyperloop or a, and or a Tesla three. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> nice. Or, or teleportation. Okay. <laughs> um, so Ellen's got a blog called Cybatical, which is pretty awesome. Um, how did you get into blogging? Blogging. Well, I uh, had I found some time um, between employment with uh, an energy energy company in Calgary and uh, before I started here at the um, Alberta Geological Survey. Um, it was a way for me to, you know, flex my my intellectual muscles, um, and you know, I was inspired in part by Agile's blog, uh, as well as uh, Matteo Nicolai has uh, his My Carta blog, and uh, yeah, I really liked. I don't know, reaching out, uh, telling some some stories, so to speak. Um, and it was, yeah, an issue of finding topics that were interesting for me to write about and, uh, you know, little projects that I could learn something new along the way. What's your favorite side project? There's a, there's a couple of cool ones on there. Um, I don't know, I guess uh, the one that came out of the hackathon in Calgary was, was probably my favorite for a number of reasons. It's been great to write about on a few um, different topics, you know, from different perspectives. Um, it was also, I guess, the one that really kicked it off for me in terms of thinking about how I could share uh, what we'd accomplished at the hackathon. What that was a sketch to model, right? Yeah, that's right. So sketch to model, we during the Calgary hackathon, we uh, came up with a web app to, I guess, uh, digitize a, a sketch on a whiteboard or a napkin or sheet of paper uh, into a block model, block diagram that could be used for uh, for presumably model R, which is uh, Agile's seismic forward modeling software. Yeah, How does... we've, we've been very, we've been totally delinquent on model R, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is, in fact, I, I think it, it works, right? At the end of the hackathon, you could actually uh, pass a model to modeler and Get it to model something. Yeah, we. Uh, yeah, the final demo at the hackathon. It didn't. It wasn't completely live. We weren't confident enough for that. But uh, right. yeah, it was. It was a working app that we could use. Um, afterwards, um, the teammates and I, so Matteo and um, Evan Saltman, uh, you know, we continued developing it and working on it over, you know, six or nine months afterwards to uh, refine the process and and get it to. Uh, yeah, a more robust algorithm, I guess, to be able to handle more and more you know, different variations in Sketch. Um, and, you know, so learned a ton from Matteo and Evan as well. Evan was more of the uh, um, web app expert, and Matteo was the image processing guy. So we, yeah, 
pulled it all together. And yeah, by the end of the hackathon, we had something that was uh, pretty much a working product. All I know about it is that you draw some cool thing on a piece of paper, which maybe looks like geology or maybe doesn't, and it spits out an Earth model for you at the end. How does it work? Uh, so, I mean, there's some interesting blog posts you could read about on my blog, but uh, essentially you take the, the image, which would be a color image from a smartphone. Um, that seemed to be the, the use case we had in mind. Um, take a picture of a sketch, whether it's on a whiteboard with, with markers or on a piece of paper with a pen, um, and it, it binarizes the image, so it turns it from you know color image into black and white, and um, we apply some morphological filtering, which you know joins up lines where lines should be joined up in case you accidentally left a gap, uh, and, and and doesn't join up lines that we don't think uh, you intended to, and um, from there it segments the image into different blocks, and those would be the blocks in your Earth model, and then it spits out. Uh, uh, a PNG image where each of those blocks is then given a different different code or, or color. Yeah, nice. And that, and basically that's what Modeler uses internally um, uh, at, as a sort of starting point for an Earth model. Uh, it just has a mapping from colors in the Earth model that you give it to rocks and their elastic properties. And then you can forward model them. Um, forward model the image as if it were an Earth model, essentially. So the whole thing. Yeah, so the, the idea behind it was to, uh, in, instead of coding in a, a wedge model um, right. or you know something slightly right. more complicated, um, you could sketch it out by hand and uh, quickly get it into Modeler and uh, see a forward model, uh, ideally within seconds. So you know if you're um, working with colleagues in a in a boardroom, sketch it out on the board and you know, with your smartphone or iPad or whatever, um, have a demonstration of what the seismic could look like for whatever um, geological realization you might have in mind. Um, and so you could, you could do that quickly for one or, or draw a dozen different um, different geological realizations and, and quickly see what difference it would make for the for, in the forward modeling problem. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's cool. And what I, what I really loved about it was that um, you know, it was the first time we'd had in a hackathon someone picking up the API for an existing tool that had sort of come out of our community and trying to use that uh, as part of their part of their solution. So actually pulling different web APIs um, together. And uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head if we've seen any more examples of that. Um, actually can't think think of any, but I, I, I feel like that's partly our fault for not being too awesome at documenting these APIs. <laughs> but, um, you know, that that was part of the uh, my hope with the hackathons was that we'd see eventually a sort of ecosystem of these microservices that do things like model generation or forward modeling or inversion or attributes or whatever. And I think slowly that's sort of coming to pass. But um, you know, it it takes a bit of push and pull, you know, like it's one thing to build these things and put them out there, but you also need users and use cases and people to help you drive your, uh, drive the development. And we don't have a culture of that yet still, right? You'll be lucky if you have a couple of dozen users kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, this is a big one. I mean, the workflow that this, 
work, I mean, like the workflow that's put together by the two pieces, modeler and sketch to model is much more geo friendly than as Owen mentions a, some programmer like putting a wedge model or whatever, like putting in binary floats into places. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. Uh, I, I really love the idea. I think it's awesome. And it's actually, it's fun just to go play with it. The, the, uh, I put a link in the show notes to the, to the website and it's still up right now. You can go, go have fun. So, Owen, you, what do you have? You have two bachelor's degrees? <laughs> I do, yeah. Why? How? That's awesome. A, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> what possessed you to do that? Well, I, um, coming out of high school, I, loved physics and uh, so I registered in the physics program at the University of Alberta and it was admittedly partly out of spite that I didn't get into engineering um, you know I was my friends were trying to convince me to go in with them and I flatly refused um, <laughs> I don't regret it <laughs> uh, so went through the physics program and uh, upon graduation you know set out into the, into the world to find you know my career my job and uh, I quickly realized you know what, if, if somebody who's looking for somebody with, um, you know, problem solving skills, strong math background, they, they're actually looking for engineers generally. So I uh, didn't find much appetite for physicists out there, but um, an uncle of mine who worked in the energy in industry uh, wondered if geophysics and physics might, uh, might be related enough for employment. So he set me up um, with some, some of his colleagues in industry just to chat about, hey, what, what is geophysics? And um, yeah, after speaking with them, decided I'm going to go back to school and uh, get a geophysics degree um, so I could work as a uh, geophysicist. Now, for me, the, the, the courses that, again, at University of Alberta for physics and geophysics are very, the programs are very closely aligned. So I found that I had a lot of the, uh, the prerequisites and courses that I needed. So it didn't take me long to, to achieve another um, bachelor's degree. And uh, that was the what I felt was the fastest route for me to get into uh, ah, into a career. I see. So one, right, because um, I, I don't know how many universities do this, Graham, but the, the U of A in Edmonton is the only place I think I know of where the geophysicists are basically in the physics department. Awesome. Um, yeah, so Evan's a graduate of the U of A um, as well. Um, yeah, what was I going to ask? Oh, so once you've used a course for a degree, you can still use that course to, to uh, as a requirement for to fulfill requirements for another degree, can you? Yeah, so the the University of Alberta has the has some guidelines on you know achieving second degrees, and uh, I think you need at least I don't know uh, ten courses worth of credits toward uh, to achieve a second degree. So. I see. Um, I think I needed 11, so that worked out pretty nicely for me. Awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's a really good path into geophysics, I think, uh, physics. You know, we've um, worked with a few physicists. Uh, well, you're, you are physics background, haven't you, Graham? No, I don't, I, uh, I don't really want to go on a rant, <coughs> per se, <laughs> about, <laughs> about geologists becoming geophysicists, but... Um, I will just say, learn your math, folks. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, if you talk to uh, Chris Jackson, you know, he wrote an essay for us 
once about how the first person to see a seismic data set should be a geologist. Um, and whatever, you know, you, you could, I, I think it's perfectly valid to argue that there is, there shouldn't be a distinction between geology and geophysics like we make, but there is, there is a distinction, or at least there's a spectrum, right? And there are geologists, more or less pure geologists who are doing geomorphology and use geological analogs in their heads for the shapes of things that they see in seismic. And then at the other end, there are people who kind of see coherent noise signals and do, are doing Fourier transforms in their heads when they look at seismic. And um, and obviously you need every, you need both of those people to see seismic data to decide if it's valid and what you can learn from it and what it means quantitatively and all that sort of stuff. So we should encourage the U of A to uh, make their geophysics program degree, uh, six year bachelor's <laughs> degree <laughs> where you have to learn math and geology. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one. I mean, there's probably, yeah. you could probably count on one hand the number of people who have enough background at both ends of that spectrum to interpret seismic on their own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I. Geologists can't tie wells, um, right? I mean, that's impossible and dangerous, I would say. Yep. Um, but you also can't tie wells just on the basis of signal processing. Yep. Like, so, I mean, it, it's an interesting, uh, I guess it's one of those fun kind of debates you can have yeah. about your profession. Well, I'm glad that we've now offended both halves of our audience. No, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's I, I like the idea of the spectrum of perception, right, based on background. Because, yeah, I think because all this is just a really great example of you know why working on a multidisciplinary team is so powerful because indeed. you can lean on everybody else's experience, whether it's you know working in different uh, areas before or you know working on projects where you have to use pre-stack inversion to really make make things work. Um, I mean, it's it's a great chance to uh, progress a project, but also to learn. And, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, we talk about mentorship and things in our, in our discipline about, you know, find a young geoscientist and, and mentor them. But I mean, to me, it's as important to mentor people who are more experienced than you um, in, in areas where they're not as strong. Um, mm -hmm. it, I've enjoyed the mentorship of a uh, vast number of people in my career so far. And uh, I've had the, the, the pleasure of mentoring a number of people as well. So. Um, I mean, I see the value, and I think it's important for people to look within their own discipline, but also, um, you know, to other disciplines as well. Yeah, what for mentors, you mean? For mentorship. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I had fun doing the Intro to Geophysics course. I did a, a really introductory level professional development course uh, over the course of a couple of years, a uh, two-day course, or two-and-a-half-day course, just with random folks that were mostly geologists, but they were chemists and stuff. And I guess is the case in any teaching scenario, you'd learn more, you'd learn 10 times more than the students learn by putting the material together and then by, and then the students interacting with you. I, mm -hmm. It's really an, an enriching experience. Yeah, totally. So, um... What uh, have you got any other sort of side projects on the go now, Elwin? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, recent, well, some of my blog posts I've, I've put out to date have to do with um, 
fantasy hockey. And, yes, I was going to uh, ask fantasy you. Hockey drafts. And, yeah, so I have uh, I have a project ongoing with, with a, I've recruited a couple of my friends to work with me. Uh, so this is this, just for those of us who don't follow these things. This is hockey, but with sort of witches and wizards. <laughs> Not so much. Uh, I mean, people are maybe more familiar with fantasy football or uh, fantasy soccer or something, but uh, essentially right. you you Sorry. draft a team of, of players uh, and the their results in real life affect your pretend team. So right. you can mix uh, and match players from different teams and okay, their, so uh, their production on ice affects. It's, it's, it's connected with their performance in the real world. That's cool. Right. Yeah, and it's it'd be a fantasy to pull this these teams of uh, really great players to play on one team. I guess that's the fantasy aspect of it. Right. Right. So the draft is going to be coming up. What next few weeks, huh? Yeah, the start of the season is coming up, and and in preparation for that, my friends and I are trying to uh, try to apply machine learning to predict yes. the uh, performance of the players over the year. So um, this would be my, I guess, my first true machine learning project. So uh, things are crunching along slowly but this is uh, awesome. it's been really it's a fun way to learn uh, learn something new that's for sure uh, so well, it's, uh, it's money money ball well, money puck yeah in a way sure yeah so understanding which players might offer you the best value in terms of um, in our league I guess the value the cost of the the player would be the uh, how early in the draft you pick the player each we take turns picking one player at a time from the list of available players so okay. if you spend one of your early picks to pick a really good player, then uh, it's more costly than a, a pick later on. Is, is the analysis, uh, well, maybe it's maybe it works on both things. Is the analysis for, for like draft uh, strategy or is it for um, full season strategy with trades and, uh, you know, bench sits and stuff? Right. Uh, this machine learning problem right now is, is about trying to predict what the player would do over for the full season. So, okay. Okay. Um, you know, will Alexander score 50 goals next year, right? To come up with some prediction of, of their productivity and goals and assists and, and some other stat categories as well. Um, so trying to look at the, that player's previous, uh, previous production, um, maybe look at what other players playing that position have done. Um, you know, players as they, as they mature and age, they, their productivity changes. So, Early in their career, it's lower. There's sort of a peak, and then it, it tails off. So, my idea is, if you throw it all, uh, throw a lot of information into it, maybe you get something viable that comes out. And uh, I realize that's fairly naive, but um, we'll start with that assumption and uh, see what we have to do to come up with, with some predictions. My so it's, um, my question wasn't wasn't good. Uh, what I meant to say was, is there like a time series component to it? So, uh, for example. Yeah, you you during the draft you want to pick the best players, highest predicted points. But during the season, you want to know maybe this player performs really poorly in in the past seven seasons against Team X or whatever. Is there sort of like a uh, temporal component to the prediction, like uh, as the season progresses? Yeah, so the project that we're working on, uh, we're which is trying to do you know season as a whole, but uh, sure. yeah. in other sports, I've. I've certainly read about people who tried to do that for uh, what's what's very popular the last few years, which is the daily fantasy sports where, um, yeah. you know, people are picking uh, a team for, for one night. And so the production on that, that night um, 
you dictate your winners and losers in the fantasy pool. And uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of data scientists that have <laughs> made some significant money in that um, oh, by yeah. analyzing the, the the right picks to make and and actually picking a vast amount of teams. So submitting a large number of teams that um, have a better chance of capturing the, the prize. There's so in I don't know anything about fantasy hockey, but in fantasy football, there are people who pay like consultants, like uh, fantasy football and draft consultants, who you you've got to pay fifty thousand U.S. dollars to, at like a retainer, just so that they help you with your picks, they help you during the season, all this stuff because people are I mean it's big, so this is your next career, Owen. Wait wait wait, wait, wait. I. Uh... <laughs> These consultants are working for fantasy football people. Yeah, so the, there's there's big money pools. Okay. Okay, so there's public there's pools. prize money for doing well in these leagues. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Where does this money come from? The entry fees from all the players. Ah, uh, you have to pay. Okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah, the leagues I'm involved in, the uh, the prize is more pride than money. I think um, we do yeah. have an entry fee, but I mean, if you for a lot of guys, if you uh, cost out the time. <laughs> the reward per God, hour don't do it <laughs> don't do it um no i, I think uh the, the prize is no longer just pride it's it's uh status amongst the data science fantasy hockey elite okay. yeah there you go and a, and a well, job uh, position, maybe <laughs> maybe someday yeah the uh the interesting thing will be to compare whatever predictions we can come up with against some of the other um other predictions out there. There are a number of sports magazines that uh, put out predictions every year for some of the top players. So, um, you know, that's, that's part of, I guess, QCing what we're coming up with, but also, uh, yeah. you know, if we can outperform their predictions, then uh, I'd take that as a pretty big victory for me anyway. So I don't want to steal your secrets or anything. Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> what kind of architecture are you using and it, like, how, how are you performing your analysis? Right, so this is pretty can, early can on, say? but uh, <laughs> well, I, I haven't got very far yet, so I, I don't mind sharing. There's not much yeah. secret out there, but uh, um, right now I'm using Python. That's that's my language of choice for all my projects. Um, and well, I was using what is it? It's a uh, long short-term memory. It, it apparently, it's good for time series predictions. So that's what I've been yes. been trying to apply. So I'm not. Maybe you guys can offer some advice on this. Well, uh, yeah, I think he needs to hire Graham as a um, as a consultant. To, it's only uh, it's only fifty time right now. It's only fifty three fifty thousand bucks worth of uh, <laughs> per per team per team. So per, per uh, participant. Uh, yeah, no, I'm so I've I have worked on and I am working on uh, LSTM regressor problems. Um, and we can compare notes sometime, but um, yeah, it, I'm, like in 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 theory, the the problem is, is really simple. Uh, you just stick the input, you know, you just stick your feature vectors on the front side of it. A really simple network. It can, it can just be like you know, like a linear layer, an LSTM, a dropout layer, and a linear layer, and then out comes your fifty thousand bucks. But in <laughs> <laughs> in practice. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a lot more difficult than that. It takes a lot of like feature engineering is tough to do because you have this temporal dependency 
And if you want to do like multi-dimensional input, which I assume you, you do want to do, then you got to somehow statistically weight your, your features to make things fit nicely. So I'm excited to see the next blog post in which you reveal, you unveil your, your project. Uh, but yeah, there are a couple. I think yeah, there's I, two posts up already, right? About it. Yeah, for the fantasy hockey. Yeah, neither of them have anything to do with machine learning. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. This this latest project is it's sort of been coming along through the summer. But uh, like you said, the draft is coming up in a few weeks or a month or so. So yeah. uh, that doesn't leave a lot of time here. Um, so not sure if I'll have a chance to get the blog post out before the draft. But uh, yeah, certainly something on my radar to get out there. So um, in in the blog posts that are up, you you mention a lot about a Python toolkit called Pandas. Um, why why Pandas? <laughs> I think I found Pandas uh, essentially because I wanted to to make a nice display of uh, of a table. Um, I mean, Matplotlib has Matplotlib has a lot of uh, you know graphs and things, but I didn't have a nice way to to display a table of results. Um, mm -hmm. So that's initially why I found out about Pandas. Uh, but it does have some nice functionality in terms of handling uh, arrays of, of data. Yeah, reading reading CSV files is easy. Um, maybe maybe even Excel files. What, what do you think about that, Matt? <laughs> Drops like, on stage. That was smooth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is, uh, uh, I, I've said before in this show that I, 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 I you know, very aware of pandas, seems to be really awesome. Do use it for some things, but I've never quite got my head into the pandas world well enough to kind of really wield it. I find doing something like I just want that value or I just want to change that thing and I get warnings or weird results and I've, I've never quite got over that kind of hump. So I generally use it, <laughs> I generally try and get into a, an umpire array as quickly as I can, but yeah, um, I can't remember quite where it came from, but there was a conversation on Software Underground a few weeks ago about Excel. And it went between uh, Lucas Mosser and, um, and Steve Purvis, it ended up with something along the lines of, if, if, if it's possible to do something in Excel, then someone has done it in Excel. So um, I think we were talking about probably reservoir modeling or flow simulation or something like that at the time. But, um, you know, and obviously there's lots of Excel files floating around in all companies. And I've seen reservoir engineers Excel files and they are something to behold. Um, and I've said before on this show too, but I'll just reiterate, if, if you do use Excel and you ever get the opportunity to sit next to a reservoir engineer while they're using Excel, I guarantee you will see things that you didn't know you could do. Like it's, it's they got Excel superpowers. Um, but it prompted me to write a blog post about how maybe Excel is used for too many things based on this, what Lucas called Murphy's Law of Excel, the kind of what you can do will, will be done. And, um, you know, just mentioning that there's stuff like Tableau and Spotfire for time series analysis, especially for people like Reservoir Engineers, who should definitely be using Spotfire, in my opinion, uh, or Tableau, which I don't know, but Spotfire is awesome. Um, you know, there's R and Python out there. There's Google Sheets, which personally I prefer over Excel, but there's, there's, there's other options and maybe sometimes they're more appropriate. 
And then I then I wrote a blog post about if you are going to keep data in Excel, then at least make it machine readable. Because I mean, people do awful things inside Excel spreadsheets with like weird table headers or random empty columns or columns containing a mixture of data types or footnotes or things that are color coded. Um, so if you tried to read them with Python or R, you wouldn't get very far, basically. So I wrote a whole post about that, uh, which prompted some people to comment with some other even better, well, even better, much better resources on how to organize spreadsheets, one of which was written by like one of the devs on R, so it's totally legit. Um, and then I followed it up with like, okay, here's how to read the CSV files in Python. Um, using pandas is the easiest way, basically. Um, but there are there are some other ways to do it, and I go through them in that post. So four of my last, sorry, three of my last four blog posts have been uh, about spreadsheets and CSV files. And I just wanted to mention that because I don't know why, but they've, <laughs> they've, been, they've had lots of comments and been shared around a lot. So they've obviously struck a bit of a nerve. But I feel like it's one of those things that even when you start hacking around in Python, you're like, okay, this is great. I can do some math or whatever, but where am I going to get data? Like, how do I do stuff on my numbers? <laughs> you know, my numbers are over here in this file. Like, um, There's still a learning curve to both Pandas and, and Python, but it, li it literally is minim as minimal as it gets. And if you haven't tried, it's, what is it? PD read CSV. Yeah. One, one line and your data is in. Yeah. And then, and then you can do things in Python like, you know, whatever. Uh, you can go do your time series analysis or your just math. yeah, and then you can write it out again one liner. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it, it, if if your CSVs are nice and clean and properly formatted, and uh, there's a tool actually on the web called CSV Linter or CSV Lint, one of those. Um, it's like in a CSV integrity checker, and it sort of gives you like warning lights if uh, things may be formatted incorrectly or might give you problems. And if, if you've got good CSVs, it's seamless. The problem is that most Excel files, in my experience, you can't just save them as a CSV and and have joy. You'll you'll be like moving rows around, deleting rows, changing columns. So the other reason I bring up the uh, blog post thing is that earlier on in the blog, when you did some financial modeling mm, yeah. in Google Sheets, and then subsequently moved into the, the Python Pandas uh, regime. So tell, I guess first just give us a brief overview of the financial modeling thing, and then tell us how much more awesome it was in one version or the other. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. The, I mean. I'm by no means a financial advisor or anything, but uh, essentially one of the things I experienced in my life was getting into the real estate in or industry, real estate market uh, by buying a home and, um, you know, quickly realized that, sure, I'm not, not paying rent to anybody, but, you know, I'm kind of paying rent to the bank. So um, that, that made me start to question, you know, what, was it really a better idea to, to buy something rather than rent, um, rent a home? So, um, yeah, after giving some some advice, some uh, well, well, a caution cautionary advice to to friends, um, 
to you know think about or consider it, decided to make a tool that people could use to you know compare uh, buying a home uh, versus renting a home and, and maybe spending the difference on investments or investing the difference uh, between the two financial financial scenarios. Um, and yeah, so, so I built a built a tool, and it's you know there's a bit of a story around it on my blog, and uh, the sheet exists on Google Sheets, and um, yeah, my I mean in my experience the the Google Sheets was, I mean it's convenient for sharing certainly people can can find it and uh, and hack on it if they want, but uh, I found you know simulation or, or or running scripts on it to be a bit slow, hmm. um, and some of the the functionality you take for granted in Excel, which I was Certainly not a reservoir engineering power user, but uh, you know, had a few tricks up my sleeve. I, I missed some of those uh, tricks in the Google Sheet. So, um, yeah, it was. I don't. Know, I, I wouldn't tell people not to use Google Sheets, but um, it's a, it's a different experience, right? Yep, sure is. Yeah, exactly. And I th I suspect you know I only have the Excel like desktop application I like probably in office 365 I'm guessing that a lot of the cool online stuff that sheets does and the sort of version control and file sharing and all that I assume is in office 365 you know it's it's cloud it's cloudy <laughs> so I mean I suspect uh, many of the uh, advantages from Google Docs are really just from my familiarity with that yeah environment right <laughs> Well, we before we before we run out of time here, I just want to ask you, scientist types, how was your eclipse experience? Ah, yeah. How was it in, in Calgary, Elwin? Because it looked pretty. Calgary. How, what percentage was the eclipse there? Yeah, I think Calgary. Oh, got sorry, a few... you were in Edmonton anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, eighty or ninety percent, maybe. Um, Whoa. Okay. Seventy nice. or eighty, something like that. Anyway, it's uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, you definitely noticed. You walk outside, and uh, you know it's dimmer. I felt like I was wearing sunglasses outside, even though I wasn't. I did have eclipse glasses though to look at the uh, look at the sun. And uh, yeah, there was a number of us outside the building. You know, stood around for twenty minutes or so, uh, admiring the uh, celestial event. How about you guys? Did you guys catch anywhere you are? Uh, yeah, it was about it was about seventy five point two three percent total here. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I unfortunately had a call at, at max totality, but I went out about 10 minutes before and, and took some shots through the old Google glasses thing, uh, the little sunglasses. Um, it, absolutely fascinating. The, the highlight of the experience for me, not being in the totality plane, was just thinking about how many pe people are out there watching this celestial event. I mean, it's amazing. It really is. You know, one 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 of the few scientific fascinations that's that's un, unescapable. You know, not not just not just easy access, easy to access, but you're gonna you're gonna see it if you're if you're anywhere near it. And people are, people love it. How about you, Matt? Yeah. Uh, so we were only about fifty uh, fifty five percent here in Nova Scotia, um, but it's the first eclipse I've experienced like solar eclipse that, that I've experienced because uh, I think we were in Norway for the 99 one which was also I think partial in Norway but it was the, the weather was crap so it wasn't um, it wasn't anything to talk about and my favorite thing was the uh, the dappled the dappled sunlight under the trees I, I just love that with the little crescent shaped spots 
uh, under the trees and on the sides of buildings through the through the sunlight coming through the trees. I love that. So and um, but I did try the colander thing. That's also quite good. I saw that your, your wife posted an Instagram post of your calendar picture. Oh, she did. Okay. <laughs> so one of her friends posted a funny comment, which was, "I hope he didn't strain his eyes." Uh, oh. It's quite good. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and with, anyway, it was so the weird thing was like a few of the people here in the hub humoured me by looking at the colander or whatever. Uh, I, I was walking around my home bay. <laughs> With a colander. Yeah, I had my colander uh -huh. and my phone. I was trying to take pictures of stuff and I was, you know, anyway, it must have looked like a bit of a widow already. But then I felt like a widow too. So I felt like I had to kind of like explain myself to random passersby. But, you know, I was trying to engage them in like, check it out. Look at these awesome crescent dappled sunlight things. And, the, you know, because the eclipse is happening. And people were like, oh, cool. And, <laughs> and nobody was remotely interested. I couldn't believe it. Like, what, have you not heard about this? Like, do you, do you understand what this was happening? They, just well, yeah, they watched yeah. the live stream on their computer. What do they need to look at it uh, through a calendar? For that? I was really, <laughs> really upset. But anyway, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a fantastic social experience, but uh, I enjoyed myself. Good. <laughs> Elwin. Thanks for joining us on the show today. It was a it was a great chat, and we look forward to winning fantasy football. I mean, uh, hockey. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Hey Matt. Um, yeah, thank you. Hey Matt. <laughs> yeah, we're doing it. We're doing this. So, uh, if I were an inhabitant of Mars, when would the next Earth solar eclipse happen? Oh, that's great. Well, that's really cool. I have, I have absolutely no idea. I've never even thought about planetary eclipses on other planets. Like, it, it, it doesn't occult the sun, though, does it? It can't do. It can't be. It's not big enough. That's, I actually don't know. I just thought of this no. two seconds ago. It'd, and it'd be I, nowhere near big enough. So it would just well, be in a transit. Right. Oh, that's right, because the distance from Mars to Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Mars has a moon. Okay. So it must experience... Let me revise the question. Hey, Matt, when's the next Martian solar eclipse? Okay, with that, we're off. See you guys next week on it. Bye, everyone. Cheers, everyone.